Welcome back, Flight 2 Friday podcast listeners. Sam Haffensteiner, one of your hosts here. Uh, we had such a great conversation with the New Orleans guys that uh, we kind of expanded into two episodes. First, uh, just wanted to jump back with the beginning of the uh, episode. We were giving a shout out to Air Station Detroit. They had that fantastic rescue of those members at the base of a cliff uh, and ended up recovering them and bringing them back into Canada. Uh, and we apologize, Mary McCracken. She was the uh, flight mechanic. So great job, Mary. Uh, excellent work on that SAR case. All right, so jumping back into it, you're we talking to Andrew Sheffy. He had a wild duty night and uh, he already had one uh, SAR case within the first couple hours of standard duty. And then he's about to jump into his second and his third. So enjoy. Um, so we, we came back after dropping that gentleman off at the hospital, um, came back here, we had dinner and I think Jake and I were actually up in the war room, like, let's, let's eat dinner now because who knows what's going to happen with the rest of the night. And sure enough, we got a call from sector and there was a, uh, there were two gentlemen on a shrimp boat that had caught fire down in Venice and uh, they, for some crazy reason, elected to, to ride out the storm on the shrimp boat, um, in Venice. Um, and they had been on their boat for over 24 hours now and their boat had just caught fire and. I, anyone that's on a boat that's on fire probably wants off. So they wanted us to go find them. Um, they had a pretty good position. So we, we launched out of here um, pretty expeditiously to get ourselves down to Venice. It was nighttime um, and it was also no, I think it actually was zero, zero illumination that night. Mm-hmm. And um, there was some, there were some pop-up storms kind of moving across the AOR. Um, and it just so happened to be that as we were about 20 minutes out from the actual location of the, the boat that was on fire, um, there was a pretty extreme, um, precipitation that literally popped up right over where we we're trying to go. So we elected to come back, um, shut down, wait out the, the thunderstorms that were rolling through the area. So we ended up going back out a second time on the same case about, about two hours later. So it was now, it was now about 1030 on Monday night and we were heading back out to, to try to get these two guys a second time, um, in route out there, sector called us to let us know that. One of the guys had made it to a highway and the other person had somehow been picked up by another boat. Um, so at this point we were just looking for an, a single individual on a highway who had been, um, without food or water for over 24 hours. The, um, the command center was worried about diabetic shock and potential hallucin- uh, hallucinations. When they were talking to the guy on the phone, apparently, um, they had comms with him intermittently. And when they did talk to him, it was the command center was concerned for his well being. Um, so on our way down to Venice, as, as Tim had just mentioned, you know, we were only 12 hours post hurricane Ida. There were no lights. Um, I honestly, I think at one point I asked our flight mech, he had the flare up, um, trying to get imagery of the, the ground below. So I was like, is that the road down there? Because I couldn't tell through my goggles. I didn't even know if that was a highway or if it was just like a body of water. And, um, Don sure, um, was like, yeah, I think that's the road. I think so. And like, we literally couldn't tell it was so dark. Wow. And so when we got, when we finally got on scene, we were, we had our iPads up to uh, ensure that there were like no towers because we there were all the towers that are in that area were no longer lit. Um, so that was a concern for us to make sure we were, you know, staying around, we stayed around six, five to 600 feet for our first couple passes um, just to make sure that we didn't like see any towers that weren't, were unlit, you know? So um, we played it really conservative in that sense for our first couple passes. And uh, on our second pass over the road where the individual was supposed to be at, Don was like, yeah, I think there's a guy in the, like just off the ditch, um, he had to clear up and, and he was getting great imagery. So we made another low path of 300 feet. And um, Jake and I had talked about where we would want to land. Would we want to land or we want to hoist? And I was like, look, if this guy's on the road and there's a pretty clear, like pretty clear area of the highway that wasn't impeded by power lines or, or debris from the storm, like I'd rather just land. 
mm-hmm. be quicker, it's safer, like as long as we're landing on a, on a safe piece of land. So um, we did elect to do that. We made our approach in over the highway. You know, we're, like I said, we're 12 hours post Hurricane Ida. Just, the roads are impassable. Um, I'm coming down to, I'm at like 75 feet over the highway. And out of, literally out of nowhere, this car just rolls up in front of us. <laughs> Meanwhile, it's pitch black. We're on goggles. And uh, totally blooms out the entire, everything we could see. So oh I, uh, I quickly just like, hey, I'm just going to hold this cover and wait for this truck to pass. Um, there, was a, there was a median, like a, a concrete median in the middle of the highway. And they were coming opposite direction. Um, so thankfully, they weren't flying or driving directly under us. But it was still nonetheless very disorienting and, uh, and shocking because we're like, what is this person doing out at 1130 at night in Venice after Hurricane Ida just rolled through here? Um, so anyway, the gentleman we were picking up was also on the highway right in front of us. And he was definitely um, overly excited to see us. And uh, I think they're, you know, delirious, little bit of uh, shock as well. Mm-hmm. As soon as we landed on the road, he started running directly at the, like, at the helicopter. And I, was, I literally was just like, hey, Rob get out and go stop this guy from getting his head cut off. Cause, and I tilted, I tilted the disc back and everything. Cause I was worried about this guy getting his head chopped off, running into the rotor arc. So yeah. um, Rob quickly jumped out, grabbed him and walked him around the, uh, the aircraft. And I think he had a couple bags of gummy bears in his pocket to, to feed him so that he you know, would make it to the hospital. Um, but yeah, we took off, we took off, the, um, lifted off the road, flew into the absolute dark abyss. Jake and I were, I mean, it was the darkest thing I've ever seen. Uh, it was, yeah. I couldn't believe it. It was like, probably like 10, like, it looked the same on and off goggles that night. Yeah. So we got, we got this gentleman back to the hospital and, um, that was, that was case closed. Case number two closed for our, our HUD duty night. We're not and done. Then, we're not done though. No, we're not Hold done. On. Can yeah, I, can I cut you off? So I've, yeah, I've been like taking notes during the case. So the report that you get is a boat that's on fire. Go get these guys. Um, so when you say like little thunderstorms to the area, they must've been like big thunderstorms for you to like, say, yeah, we're not going to continue going to land and wait. Um, Correct. What yeah. was kind of going through your head there? Um, did you make it back to the air station or did you land on some intersection and, and wait it out? We, we elected to just come back to the air station. Um, the way the weather was moving and the forecast for that evening showed that there could be a potential for like the small thunderstorm that was right now to become much larger. Um, and so Jake and I, taking taking off for the initial launch we knew that the weather was kind of you know the way like potentially could be thunderstorms later um and then once we saw the thunderstorm on scene we're like hey let's just go back reassess figure out figure out exactly what we're wanting wanting to wanting to do and where um and when um so just buy ourselves the time and being back at the air station to do that was the best choice okay uh did you guys call ops and say hey this is what we did um what, what was the response what was the reaction how did that conversation go yeah so i initially called sector to because when we told sector we were turning around because of weather they they pushed back kind of hard they were like can you guys not just go see if the person's there can you check on the guy like we just want to get we just want you to have eyes on him and i'm and i'm thinking that thinking and talking to jake i was like dude if we fly like we're not gonna be able to see more than like 100 feet in front of us because the it was like you know the cell was literally going red into into pink um, and so sector doesn't see that. And so it was very difficult to convey that to them over the radio. Um, so once we landed back at home field here, I, part of my phone call to sector was telling them like, Hey, look, this is the weather right now. I can't go for the next hour or possibly two. Um, like what, what is the status of this individual that we're now trying to find? 
Um, and so there was the conversation back and forth with Sector, and that's when they then told us, like, hey, we think this guy might be um, a little delirious. We think he might be in diabetic shock. We're not really sure, certain about his health and his well-being. Um, so that's why they were pushing us really hard. And I was like, well, look, I, I'm not going to send our crew into a thunderstorm to, to find this guy who's on a freeway. Like, we, they knew he was on land at that point. So to me, the case kind of died down in, in urgency because he was no longer in the water or on a boat that was on fire. Mm. Um, and so, therefore, yeah, I'm just trying to put myself like in your shoes. Yeah. I'm a brand new aircraft commander. Uh, a boat's on fire, and you basically said you basically turned down a case of saying, "I'm not doing that. The weather is not going to allow me to do that." And that's not an easy decision to make. So, yeah, good on uh, you, man. Kudos on you. Thanks. Yeah, no, it, it was hard. I think I think when we looked at the weather, it was like a pretty. It was it was bad enough that we were like, yeah, we're not like, we're not going to throw fly ourselves into that regardless of, you know, the boat fire someone else had already been picked up off the boat. And now this guy was on land. So I think the the decision ended up being made a little bit easier than, than one might think. Uh, but yeah, it was still, it was still something we had a, we had a long discussion about in the aircraft on our way back to a uh, home field to then call sector and launch again two hours later. Yeah. So at, when you made that decision, did you have the piece of information that he was on land or did you still just think it was a boat fire? Um, we, at that point they told us he was under a bridge okay. and that was really all we knew. We weren't sure if the bridge was like, you know, like an overpass bridge or if it was like a bridge that crossed a body of water. They had just told us that he was under a bridge. Um, that was really all we knew at that point. Then the phone call back on deck gave light to that he was, on the highway or, or a little bit, a little bit safer. So, which just reinforced our decision. Like, yeah, well, I'm really glad we came back to land here and wait the weather out. Yeah. That's awesome, man. That, that sounds like a really, I want to hear about case three. Like we're only in case, case three. Two. Yeah. We had to do it. Yeah. Man. Sorry. I don't need to drag it out here. No, so drag three, it out, man. It's great. <laughs> we were, um, we woke up, no, no urgency in the morning. I think we just took our time getting ourselves up out of bed and uh, sleeping on our cots what, for whatnot. Um, we got a call around 11. Um, and this was, this was, this is what's weird about hurricane ops is sometimes you can get tasking from sector or sometimes you can get tasking direct from GoSep. So when GoSep tasked us for the third case, sector didn't even know we were getting tasked. Um, so GoSep is more of the, this, the governor's office, the state is more, in control of the star cases, whereas like, you know, sector normally is strictly Coast Guard. Um, so when we got a call from GoSEP, Miles Richardson was actually working at the GoSEP office. Um, it was for a medevac for two individuals down at Grand Isle. And if you're not familiar with where Grand Isle is it, um, in relation to like Port Fouchon and Venice, it's sort of smack dab in the middle between Venice and, and Port Fouchon, which is exactly where Hurricane Ida made landfall. Mm-hmm. Um, so Grand Isle was virtually ground zero for where hurricane Ida made landfall. And when we got down there, it, I mean, it's just covered in sand and houses are either completely obliterated or not habitable anymore. Um, so it, and it was, it was shocking. I mean, to see, see the devastation down there in grand Isle Tuesday morning. So now we're, now we're 24 hours post, uh, post hurricane landfall. Um, we had, uh, we had, sorry, I'll just back up here. The original report was for two, two gentlemen, I think uh, mid sixties that both had one was the leg leg lap leg lacerations and another was in diabetic shock. Um, so we had been told that there was a landing zone that we could put the aircraft down in, 
that other other helicopters had been using previously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were like, great, this is awesome. Like, this is going to be, you know, a repeat of the chase number one and two where you just land on a field and pick up our people. Um, so we headed down there. There were about five other aircraft orbiting at three to 500 feet over Grand Isle. And some of them were talking on our CTAP. Some of them weren't talking on CTAP. One of them was a one of them was a state police helicopter delivering water and supplies, mm-hmm. and all the rest were um, just media and and uh, oil oil company helicopters, which which made it all the more stressful and and task saturating because you know everyone just wants to get pictures of the devastation, and here we are trying to pick up people who just like seen their home been you know decimated the night before. Mm-hmm. So that was that was the first challenging piece of getting down to Grand Isle. The second piece was the landing zone that was apparently there did not exist. Um, and I don't know for what reason, if we were looking at the wrong area or if the lat longs that we were past were, were incorrect, but regardless, um, we were, we were getting down to, we, we weren't like fuel critical at any point, but I was definitely like watching our fuel tick down as we kept making, you know, orbits over Grand Isle where we were supposed to land. And we're like, dude, we, there's nowhere for us to land. And we made an approach to the back of a parking lot behind a building. And as we made an approach to the back of the building in the parking lot, like we saw sheet metal start to lift off the ground. And we were just like, yep, let's just wave this off and come back up to altitude. So, um, as that, as the length of our time orbiting overhead and just burning more fuel and knowing that there's two people on the ground that need to go to a hospital, I was like, Hey, look guys, we just need to get Rob on the ground Mm -hmm. to figure out where these people are first. Cause I don't even know if they're where they say there are now that this landing zone is no longer where it was said it was supposed to be. Um, so Jake actually was in the right seat and, and just put Rob down to the middle of the middle of a street where a whole bunch of firefighters are waiting for him. Um, Rob got down on the ground and quickly figured out like, okay, these are our people. Meanwhile, I looked over to the left and I was like, dude, there's this huge beach over here. Let's just land and figure out the rest once we're on deck. So we don't have to keep hovering, burning gas, deal with, dealing with all these aircraft that are trying to get pictures of us now hoisting the, de- the, the devastation of Grand Isle. Like, let's just take ourselves out of the game, put ourselves on deck and mm-hmm. figure out the rest once we're in there. Um, so that's what we elected to do. I, I, Jake finished up his hoist, called for rest and check part three. And then I, uh, I just took controls and slid the aircraft forward and left probably about 300 yards and put ourselves on the beach line at Grand Isle. Um, at that point it was something out of a movie, like Rob just rolls over the sand dune in the back of a, of a gator with these two guys that are like straight out of like, um, duck hunting season. And, uh, these two gentlemen went the back of the gator with, uh, their injuries. And sure enough, they've stopped the gator and Rob carries each one of them into the aircraft like a gentleman he is. And, um, we quickly thereafter close the cabin door and take off and head back to uh, the city to drop both of these individuals off. Um, we are met by the nurses on a, on a, on the yellow pad with gurneys for both of them. Cause they were not, uh, they were not ambulatory. Yeah. Not, yeah. And that was, that's case number three kind of closed and wrapped up. And that was, I think like one o'clock in the afternoon on, on Tuesday and then uh, duty released at three thirty. So Jake and I were happy to call it quits and go home. Can or, I, just, I guess before you say yeah. anything, Kenny, I, I just want to say that, uh, but one, the story is awesome. Two, it required me to walk to the to the fridge and get another round of beers for us. So, well played, <laughs> you're, sir. You're welcome. You're welcome. So here's here's my question to you: Did you set the parking brake and nose wheel lock when you landed on the beach, or no? They they definitely did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they definitely. If, ask the, ask your ops what happens if you don't set the nose wheel lock and you land on a ten degree slope. Yeah. He, oh he, well, the, so the beach was flat. The beach was definitely okay. flat. Okay. But, um, yeah. If you're looking for a good story, ask your ops what happens when you do that. <laughs> okay. Awesome. That's good. Yeah. I mean, uh, for the listeners out there, uh, this will be our next 60 swap from the 65 and uh, we'll be sad to lose it as a, as an air station. I kind of wanted to highlight a little bit 
about the air station besides the SAR aspect. So, uh, Timmy, from your perspective, you know, what, what is NOLA like as a place to live? Good places to live is a fun town. Um, what do you like to do there? Uh, yeah, I don't think you're going to find a, a, a cooler place that has better culture than New Orleans. I mean, um, every Sunday it's Saints football. I mean, whether you like the Saints or not, you get entrenched into the culture here. Um, you're out, you're rooting for the Saints. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's an amazing place to live. I mean, um, the food's great. I think, uh, I was just in Mobile and, uh, I gave Kenny a food recommendation, uh, six, eight months ago, Kenny, I don't even know. And he still raves about the one place that I told him to go, uh, because it was the best was you this the red? It, no, no, no. <laughs> it was uh, Coquettes, right? Coquettes. Yeah, Coquettes. It was the yeah. best dining experience I've had what of my life. To go yeah. to Coquettes. Yeah, Alex and I went out there, and uh, they, on their menu, they have it's like at the very bottom, it's like, put us in your hands, and they just bring you food that's and wine. I and I was like, oh, that's, that's us. And it was the best dining experience of my life. And I felt a little weird because every course, it was like a five course meal. And the wine guy would come over and say, okay, so this wine is from this and this and the um, river rocks that this vineyard is, you know, grown upon is going to pull out the earthy minerals of the strawberries in the next dish that you're about to have. And I just, it took every ounce of my body to not just start like kind of smirking and laughing because it was kind of like, uh, I'm just not that schwanky of a guy, but man, I absolutely loved it. That was the best recommendation I've gotten for food. And I, you, we could give you five more, you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, we, yeah, we could, you know, not sponsorships, but, uh, we can, we can give you a lot of recommendations for places to go. But, uh, you know, I think the culture is probably the biggest thing. You're like, obviously Mardi Gras is a, a, a huge draw for, for a lot of people yeah. and not just Bourbon Street Mardi Gras, but like just the festival season in general. I mean, you have crawfish festival, you have oyster festival, you have any festival you can think of Jazz um, here in the Jazz Fest is awesome. Dude, don't so, laugh at me, um, Kenny. Smooth Jazz Fest. <laughs> so I think I think that's it. That's for New Orleans. You know, if you like eating and drinking, uh, it's it's an amazing place to come to. Uh, if you like mountains and hiking, probably not the greatest place <laughs> to come to. Uh, <laughs> so it, it, it's all about what what you want. Um, but I, I'd say work wise, uh, it's probably uh, some of the most satisfying work you'll see. And I'll have to give a shout out to the maintenance crew here. I mean, you know, we, we have, um, the, the star case loads that we have, we have, I think Dusty will talk about in a little bit, but probably over 300 cases a year. We save close to hundred, hundred lives a year. Um, on top of having, uh, RDB AI here, uh, having deployables, having aircraft go away for RDB AI, uh, the maintenance personnel in the engineering department here work, um, extremely, extremely hard. And I think our CEO, uh, well, he always talks about how hard they work, but um, just from a pilot's perspective, too, um, I know the three of us, uh, especially Isaac as an AEO, um, can't say enough about the people that work here, do maintenance on the aircraft, and they show up every day with a smile on their face. And, you know, you'll see it after they come back on a star case. They're like, they get out and everybody comes to the helicopter and like, oh, how was it? What's going on? Um, and that's like daily. And everybody is super excited about it. Um, so shout out to the, to the maintenance and, uh, enlisted side of the house that are just, um, keep us fine and do an outstanding job. That's, that's awesome. Hey, Hey, Andrew, I'm a, I'm a first tour. God, if I could go back and do this again, I'm a first tour going to NOLA. Where do I want to live? Ooh, well, I'm going to, so if you did not live in the place I'm a, live, I'm a West Banker. I'm a West Banker. Everyone's going to tell you to live on the East Bank. Um, but Isaac and I both live on the West Bank and there's, we got a, we got a West Bank posse growing. 
nice. um, if I do say so myself. I think it's the best because you get you get a bigger house for the same amount of price, and instead of being walking distance to all the bars and breweries like Tim is, um, you drive seven minutes or you catch an Uber for you know twelve bucks. Um, instead of yeah, instead of blowing all your BAH on a on a shotgun house with no yard and no garage. Um, I save some of my BH and I get a yard with two garage or a two car garage and a driveway. And, um, and I'm still really close to all the really good places in like the East bank, not to mention all the other local places that are to eat on, on the West bank where I live. So, and you guys are you me, West um, bank bell chase where the air station bell, is. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Correct. Gotcha. And then, uh, t- West so, on the East side. So it's a little <laughs> weird. West bank of the river. So yeah. You'll figure it out when you get Yeah. It. You'll yeah. figure it out. Tim, dude, you're about to have a kid. You're not going to see the inside of a bar for two years, buddy. <laughs> I, I know. It's, uh, you better soak I'm, it up. I'm very excited. Super happy. Uh, I'm excited to have a kid. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Andrew, what's your favorite uh, bar or restaurant? Um, I mean, it depends on what kind of food we're going to have. Oh, I mean, yeah, exactly. Like we could, we could have three hours talking about what, what kind of food or which restaurant's the best. Um, what names in your head? What names in your head? If we're doing breweries. Uh, Port Orleans for a good a good beer. Okay. Um, if, if we're trying to get like if we're trying to get good tacos, barracudas uh, on chop, or now the new barracudas on the West Bank. You know they're trying to they're trying to expand. So um, yeah, tacos are great over here. If I'm getting Thai food, I'm gonna go to I'm gonna go to actually Indian food. I'm gonna go to turmeric here on the West Bank. So mm-hmm. yeah. all right. Next next time you guys have ROL, you come in Mobile. Let me taste some of these beers from that brewery you're talking about. Yeah, that's right. Bring some over here. Sounds like a plan. Sounds like a plan. I'm talking about. Man, it's been great talking to you guys. You got, uh, Isaac, you got anything else to highlight about this uh, brand new air station you're at? Uh, well, I'll say Sheffy's pitch for where to live worked out pretty good because I'm basically his neighbor now. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoying it a lot. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's been fun. I mean, coming from Hawaii, you know, obviously that's like the, the outdoor playland, you know, and I knew coming here, obviously it was going to be an adjustment. But I can echo what Tim said, man. We have, loved living here so far just like everyone's super nice like i actually know my neighbors you know they help each other out like you know like you walk around the neighborhood with your dog and like people are friendly and actually want to get to know you uh we're in hawaii everyone's just so fast and busy and i'm only going to live here for six months or or i'm a tourist and i'm paying a thousand dollars a night so i don't got time to talk to you so uh the culture here really has already been super welcoming and uh definitely a highlight and as i've asked people where to eat uh I already have a list of like probably 300 places to try. And so I've stopped asking people because I'm like never going to get through this list. So uh, definitely no shortage of good food, good culture and uh, good people down here. So uh, we're, we're loving it so far. Man, that's awesome. Hey, uh, before we uh, have a little end note of this episode with your ops boss, we're going to give him a call here in a sec, but uh, we'd like to finish our episode with just a piece of advice that you guys have gotten over your uh, air aviation or coast guard career that has uh, put you where you, th- you where you want to be, where you guys are at now, or things you want to share with others. Um, so if you guys could give us one of those, Timmy, we'll start with you. Oh man. Um, I, I teach this to all the co-pilots, first pilots, and it's something that Kenny taught me, but, uh, aim small, miss small. So, uh, Oh yeah. I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's my, I, I, I Kenny's probably one of my favorite, uh, instructors not to, uh, you know, downgrade like Dakota Brody or any you know, Joe Heal, they're all great. But uh, I just re- still remember that uh, that AC start stand check that I had when you gave me probably 55 EPs in uh, <laughs> two hours. And uh, it, was, it was probably one of the hardest, hardest flights I, uh, I had. Um, 
but uh, I felt like I earned it. And I think I did the same thing with Sheffy. You know, we had AC Sanchez and um, I said, hey, I want you, it's going to be hard, but I want you to feel like you earned it. Um, but the, the aim small, miss small is probably the biggest thing. I uh, it's, it's not overwhelming. It's not profound, but it's, uh, it works. I like so. that. Andrew, uh, did that happen to you on your AC stand check? Uh, yes, Tim is a relentless IP. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what kind of advice you got for us, guy? I was uh, a fresh pi- uh, co-pilot here in New Orleans. I think it was a fan flight with our old EO, Lieutenant Commander Larry Santos. And uh, at the end of the flight, he told me that uh, I am in the stage of my career where I need to build my build my knowledge base um, and get in the books as much as possible. Um, so I did that. And then he said, in addition to building your knowledge, your, your bucket of knowledge, you need, you'll, you'll build your bucket of experience. And he said, that is not something you can like read in a book or get overnight. That that's something you have to pursue and, and you get over time. And I, and I think New Orleans is a perfect place for that, um, experience bucket. And I'm just grateful for, for having to be able to stay, you know, having been stationed here and, and getting a good foundation of knowledge. The, uh, the FEB here has been really really, really good at, at building that knowledge base and, and reinforcing that knowledge base. And then, and then you guys heard about the, the experience that we can get here in NOLA helps build that, that experience bucket. So, um, I think that's the, uh, that's the advice or I guess wisdom that I was given from an old EO, um, that is stood, stood true to this day. And I think it will continue to stay true as we move forward. Yeah. Thanks for sharing, man. Isaac, what do you got for us, buddy? Yeah, so unfortunately he's retired, but one of my favorite pilots and one of the best mentors I ever had in the aircraft was uh, Commander Ron Green. Uh, he's a prior Marine guy. Uh, hopefully some of you guys have flown with him. Uh, he was awesome. But uh, uh, one, of the, one of his like, kind of tenets was you always talk about building your team. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, we always get worried about, you know, your men's and my, my, my check ride and things going on or whatever. But it's about making those uh, professional deposits. And you always talk about making deposits because one day you're going to have to, you know, make a withdrawal. So going out there and, you know, being on time, being professional, doing all the little things uh, with your people you work with, both, you know, your supervisors and your and your subordinates, you know, that, that night when you look at a guy and say, hey, I know this is just a flare sighting or whatever, it's 2 a.m., I need your A game. Um, when you've made those deposits, you can uh, you can make withdrawals later on. And uh, just like an NFL team or whatever, you can have the best quarterback, you can have the best pilot in the plane, but if uh, your flight mech or your rescue swimmer isn't proficient or hasn't been getting the training that needed or you've kind of let the training at the air station uh, fall away, um, your team's not going to be any good. Unless all, you're only as strong as your weakest link. So, yeah, I encourage people. Uh, you, obviously, you can if you're a first-tour guy, you know, you build that team by building yourself first, like Jeffrey was talking about, building that knowledge base, uh, doing those things. But uh, always try to build the team because uh, you might be in a new air station where you don't know where you're going, and you really hope that that co-pilot you're flying with uh, is being trained well by everyone else. And uh, uh, it, so just always make a focus to try to build your team and uh, and then try not to stay so focused on yourself. But uh, Ron Green, awesome guy. He's out there retired in Utah now, so hopefully he's living a good life. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, man. Um, I think you're speaking directly to our, uh, skipper Captain Holzer because he is, uh, routinely made that deposit withdrawal, uh, uh, speech there. So awesome guys. Well, really appreciate the incredible SAR stories from a two week period, which is wild that you guys had all those SAR, SAR cases in that short amount of time. Um, you got any other parting shots? I don't think so. Just don't let Dusty talk too long. Yeah, that's a, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna call him up here in a short sec. Good. I think that's it for us. All right, Ken, you got anything else? No, sir, not at all. Thank you guys uh, for taking some time out of your day to talk to us about uh, knowing your experiences. Appreciate it. Yeah, you guys have yeah, a good one. Fly safe. Uh, thanks, guys.
Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Hello. Commander Williams, is that you, sir? It is I. A great greetings. This is welcome. uh welcome to Sam Hafenstein. I got uh Kenny Ingram on the line. And I'm hey, here Kenny too, Ingram. but you won't hear much of me. <laughs> Hi, Sam. Hey, uh, so we were just talking to your crew, um, and we wanted to end our episode with a little ops insight. But uh, before we get started, uh, sir, can you just give us the internal cabin fire uh, EP, please? Uh, what are the bull face? Flight control state loads aircraft. All right. We'll see you at your next P course. Good. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. <laughs> oh, man, it's, good. it's good to hear from your crew. Your, uh, your gents had some incredible stories. Uh, and it just sounds like you guys are busy down there, like real busy. Can you speak to that op temp a little bit? Yeah, I mean, uh, fourth air station for me, and uh, there's nothing been quite like it. I think the closest I've probably been at op tempo was San Francisco, especially after Magoo opened. And we increased op tempo by picking up LA's AOR. But coming here, we're running on average 800 to 850 SAR hours a year. And that includes about 300 cases on average. Uh, pretty expensive AOR. Yeah, pretty expensive AOR. We're covering from like White Lake, Louisiana, which is just uh, to the east of Lake Charles, okay. all the way over to Apalachicola, Florida. So you figure like over 600 nautical miles of coastline. Pretty expensive. Two sectors, sector Mobile and sector New Orleans that each have their own challenges. And uh, yeah, definitely because of that increase of the op tempo here. Yeah, that's, that's wild. Yeah, I wanted to um, dive in a little bit about just the overall risk, uh, management. Cause your, your guys talked a lot about some landing on in, in different spaces that we don't land, usually land in. They're going offshore at night, rig landings going 180 miles offshore. How did you, uh, how do you prepare as an ops boss for that? And, and what kind of risk decisions go through your head for those things? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think one of the things that, that goes most into it is, is trusting your crews and the folks that have been here a little bit longer than you. Um, to really lean into their knowledge of the AOR. Um, it was good when I first came in here too, my first year, having uh, Pat Dill as the CO, now Captain Dill, he's, he's up at school. He had been here as a first-door aviator and then also um, as XO and then CO. So a lot of mentorship from him and just having some humility to learn um, his expectations of the AOR and how he managed risk allowed me to kind of grow my own comfort level. Mm-hmm. And then I would say... On top of that is just really leaning in and building relationships with the SAR mission coordinators at the sectors um, and really developing kind of some trust and rapport with those SMCs to really have tough conversations in the middle of the night on those challenging cases, which allows us to delay when we need to, to really plan missions, to talk about warranted risk, uh, gain versus uh, the risk that we're accepting, and, uh, and really just put us in a place to have the bias for action, but temper that, uh, as our new CEO says, Commander Blair, with a little bit of, uh, you know, hesitation of getting out the door and rushing and using the tools that are available to us now with these AMDs, ForeFlight, all the other things that are there to allow us to really look at the, the big picture and decisions to, to go, no go. Yeah. And for my mom, listening, an AMD is the iPad that we take uh, with us. Flying. Yeah, that's it. Okay, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So to, to follow on that question, like, you know, you've got a wardroom of sounds like some rock star pilots. Like, how do you prepare them to make these decisions? You know, if a first tour aircraft commander who basically turns down a mission to be like, yeah, the weather's not good enough for me to continue. Like, I'm coming back. And and him and I were just talking. I'm like, that's a really tough decision to make as a brand new aircraft commander. Um, and sir, we I've known you for a while, and 
you know, you like having control of a lot of things. And it sounds like you, you can't always do that when you're in this ops boss position. You can talk to the crew before they head out, but you got to trust that once they're out that door, that they're going to make good decisions. How do you prepare them for that? Yeah, I think it's really setting some good ops guidance principles. Um, you know, we've had discussions in the wardroom the third Thursday of every month at our pilot's call, we run kind of what we call a command spotlight. And it's really like choose your own adventure. We let the wardroom like talk through scenarios, a case that we may or may not have. And really good ops CEO and, and our XO with having Brimblecom here and the expensive experience that he has as well to kind of talk through our decision making. And at the end of the day, uh, giving people that the ops guidance, uh, one of the articles that I attached to my very first email out to the wardroom was by Vice Admiral uh, Courier that was risk management for the proficient operator. And he talks a lot about warranted risk and when to be within policy and when to be without policy. Providing that to the wardroom, but then also providing a little bit of my expectations with the answer that I share with them is that it depends. It depends a lot on so many different things that go into every case and not every case is going to be the same. And at the end of the day, learning your pilots, learning their comfort level, and uh, when they call you in the middle of the night um, and they tell you like, hey, this is going to be a very high risk case, accepting that for, uh, for what they're sharing with you and then supporting them in their decisions when they get back. Yeah. So have you had a case where um, a, a crew goes out, PIC uh, comes back, they give you a call, kind of that, hey, hey, sir, good news, bad news, good news, we saved life, bad news is, uh, yeah, I kind of deviated from 3710. Have you ever disagreed with that decision? And how do you handle that situation with that pilot? I personally, in this tour, have not had a case where I've disagreed with a decision to break policy. I think a prime example that you have from, uh, from discussions with Tim Ola today is the most recent one with the, with the shark attack. Um, I think that is a, a fantastic example of warranted risk. And going outside of policy, because of the mission situation, uh, making a decision as the aircraft commander. When he came back and shared that we did what they referred to as a bad poo, um, a basket augmented double pickup of the rescue swimmer and survivor, that's not something that we train for ever do. But given the fuel circumstances, the impacts of Ida afterwards, no fueling sources anywhere, how critical this patient was, they made an on-scene decision, explained it to me when they got back, and it's a fist bump, high five, great job. Yeah. Have you ever had a case where you've come back and had to make that call to ops or like, hey, sir, this is what I did and someone disagreed with your decision? I think uh, the closest come to is, you know, those decisions, whether to pick up a uh, next to kin or not on medevacs. There's always some debate on, you know, where you're going through the star addendum and the policy that's attached to that on when you can and can't take him for somebody who may be, you know, over the age of 18. Um, but I personally have never experienced coming back and, and having that call like, man, I wouldn't have done that. Um, I, I know some, some peers that have um, throughout their careers. And I think, again, coming back to sitting in the ops seat is the better we can, better job we can do of managing and sharing some expectations, but then also uh, supporting our, our aircraft commanders to go out and truly make those decisions and be within policy and teach them the policy. I think that's how we're going to best set up our wardrooms for success. Yeah. Hey, sir, speaking of uh, picking things up, didn't you try and pick up a national security cutter with a 65? <laughs> yeah, I think they call me Mr. Talon for that. I may or may not uh, be uh, you know, very closely attached to Jesse, one rep, Max Kaiser. <laughs> okay. okay. For, uh, for some East Act deployment stuff. 
I'm pretty sure the story goes that the props did come out of the water um, <laughs> before we set it back down. But uh, yes. Uh, was there, there or was there that. not an admiral on board with that? I can't remember if that was that one. Negative. That was not an admiral on board of okay. that one. That okay. was that was the second day of a 40-plus day deployment. So we ended up not flying the rest of the time. <laughs> that is how it's done, folks. Yep. Yeah, that is how it's done. Exactly. And that's great. Hey, so uh, I'll put you on the spot, uh, Ops. Temperature, your wardroom, um, what do you think of your pilot core right now? And uh, how do you feel about uh, the readiness of Air Station New Orleans? I think it's exceptional. Um, I think just world-class, the folks that we have there, very proud of our FEB cadre and what they're doing, growing the next generation of ops officers, EOs, safety officers. Um, one cool thing about New Orleans is kind of a first-tour factory. Uh, the folks that we have that are coming in there progressing to advance are an aircraft commander and uh, our FEB does an amazing job kind of running the training program. Um, you know, some things we talk about is just being creative and being prepared. I think that's one of the off-scouting principles of discipline preparation and our wardrobe really takes that to heart and, uh, and going out and training hard on these recurrent training events, mm-hmm. um, push in, you know, not always being on the same altitude. Uh, a Kenny Ingramism is, you know, that aim small, miss small. And, uh, and focus some people on, on striving for excellence. You don't have to be perfect every single time we go out there, but go out there with a plan in place, um, and push the boundaries of, of training the same stuff that you do all the time. We call it recurrent training. It's not routine training. Um, we want to go out there and, and really, uh, again, just grow the expertise, um, beyond just the proficiency piece. And I think across the board, our wardroom is just absolutely exceptional. With everything that they manage here, the deployable RWAI as a satellite unit, um, the search and rescue load, the response to hurricanes, you know, last year, this year with Ida, um, the adaptability they have, the flexibility, the resiliency they have, and just how intelligent they are across the board. Couldn't be prouder to be ops of, of this wardroom. Off the top of your head, how many uh, days deployed are you guys doing for supporting RWAI? So uh, it is exponentially increased from years past. Um, the current administration, uh, is traveling about, uh, three weekends a month. Um, we plan for 270 days a year and we're targeting right now, uh, close to 320, if not 340. Wow. You guys are busy. I mean, between, you know, tropical storms, two, two, you go B zero B one. You guys are busy. Yeah. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Definitely. Uh, Definitely redline the out tempo here. Um, but I would say uh, along those lines, there's one good thing about that is that you actually do get return on investment for the energy and the time that you put in. There are a lot of lives saved here. You come back, there's goodness in the mission that you do. The marine transportation system here is uh, expansive through the Port of New Orleans and Mississippi River. Um, so even our Port Waterways Coastal Security stuff, I know folks aren't you know always excited about those missions, but, uh, you know, it is a mission of consequence, especially for this AOR that we're in. And then, you know, the deployable RWI piece, um, our folks that carry that, they're all IPFE. So when they're not doing those missions, they're back here training up the next generation of pilots. And yeah, extremely busy. Uh, like I said, nothing, nothing like I've ever seen in my career. And I've heard about how busy New Orleans was, but uh, until you're here and you're living it out day to day, you really don't have an appreciation for it until, until you're in it. Yeah. Hey, so um, maybe some of our listeners have picked up on our our needling of the um, 
delineation between urban SAR and CI SAR. Yeah. <laughs> and so I know, I know that you are a, uh, probably the Coast Guard's biggest proponent of uh, using the term CI SAR. Can you just explain that for us and, uh, and how that differs from urban SAR? So I'm a big proponent of standardization. So I'll start there. And I think that ATC is the flagship of standardization for aviation. So as I've said to you and Kenny, if we're going to get it right there, um, I think that's the place to start. But uh, in terms of the uh, ICS world, the the command structure piece when we're when we're uh, providing response to these surge capacity operations for hurricanes, uh, what's referred to in the national response framework is catastrophic incident search and rescue. So that is the inland SAR that we do in urban environments. Mm-hmm. Um, for the federal response side, the urban SAR is collapsed buildings and, and things like that. So. Anytime we're responding to these hurricane ops, we are working for the state uh, and federal um, kind of response effort as a Coast Guard organization. So the term that our partners are using at the state and local level is CISAR, Catastrophic Incident Search and Rescue. Got it. I think the term that we that we use is urban SAR. So our background. Uh, producer, Ryan, is sitting next to me now, and he's been... Uh, he's in our stand cube here at ATC, and he's been battling you on this when it comes to like TTP. Hey, do we label it CISR? And I've been feeling him like, no, nah, it's urban SAR. Like, let's talk pilot speak here. <laughs> and so I've definitely been feeling that. I, I think you, we were at a stalemate for a little while, but I think we've come to an agreement, right? Like there's CISR, and then maybe like a subset of that could be urban SAR. Is that correct uh, summary? I think so. No, I think that's an exceptional uh, compromise there. Okay. Ryan and I chatted about it last time I'm there. I think <laughs> as long as we're, the, you know, the blanket term is what, you know, our federal partners and state partners are using so that we kind of have an overall blanket. You know, that's like the local policy here and how we actually respond from a flood punt standpoint to rotary wing and fixed wing assets, you know, working with our CBP partners are, that are coming in, specifically in Louisiana. They have a really bu- robust emergency operations center and uh, at the government's o- Governor's Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness that's up in Baton Rouge. And that e- EOC the entire time re- refers to it as uh, CISR. Mm. So for us, you know, being aligned with our partners that we that we support and respond to, um, I want to use that language and have my wardroom using that language and then standardization as we quote-unquote do surge ops. I think that's one of the, the things that we bring value to the nation. Okay, I think we've been talking about CI Star long enough. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dusty. I did make a note as the producer that as soon as you said that I was right, I just cut the tape. So thank you, sir. Yes, you're welcome, Ryan. You're welcome. Oh, man. Hey, I got got one more serious question. So, um, all of us here know you as, as a top-notch officer, real put together. And uh, when you were AOPS in San Francisco, we used to have an over-under in the wardroom for how long you would talk during pilot meetings, passing all your information. Um, so Kenny actually started a clock here. Um, so I'm curious if uh, you still have that going on in your own wardroom in New Orleans. Oh, I'm sure my, my wardroom officers do. And I've, uh, I've, I've tried to get to a place where I have a checklist of things that I will talk about. And then I stop talking when I get to that checklist to not go over my time. Okay, good. Yeah. Cause we're, we, we said five minutes and I think we're at 20 minutes with you. So yeah, you're, you're welcome. <laughs> Ops, what's going on with the 60 transition and Noah, what, what can you give us? Uh, 60 transition. Uh, great question right now. Integrated uh, project team out of headquarters with our, you know, quad P folks from ALC that are working uh, we just had 
one of our final calls to kind of talk through the transition plan that we put together. So what I can tell you is that right now it is going live in FY22. The first 60 is scheduled to be here per the transition, the draft transition plan. On 1 May, second 60 gets here 1 June, and the third 60 gets here 1 July of 2022 is what we're targeting. Mm-hmm. So those will come from Clearwater. Um, we will start a transition of the 65s on 1 April, and uh, that will go to support Atlantic City's deployable RWAI. And then from there, we'll start rolling out the rest of the 60s, uh, 65s July, sorry, June, July, August. To, to push those out here. There'll be two that leave in July. And as you know, I think the big picture thing here is it supports the service life extension program for the short range recovery and medium range recovery uh, in layman's terms, the 65 and the 60 and for uh, improving the capabilities and capacity for the long-term aviation piece mm-hmm. through the mid 2030s. And this is kind of, you know, looking at Traverse city, looking at Brinkin and now new Orleans, this is part of that growth to 127 60s fleet wide to increase that medium range recovery capacity in the Coast Guard as we kind of come to the end of the service life of the 65. So it's going live. Uh, we're planning for it. We're trying to figure out how we're going to fit them in the hangar. Uh, we're talking through that. And next week, specifically 27th through the 29th of September, we'll have uh, members from 1131, 711, and 41 out of Coast Guard headquarters that are coming down to do a, a personal site visit. And then one of your own ATC 60s is going to come over here Tuesday of that week to look how it fits in the hangar and uh, mm-hmm. kind of get some specs there. But yeah, it's going live. So in your, uh, in your heart of hearts, are you ready to give up the 65 for the 60? I'm not, I'm not, I'm right on the verge of hitting 2000 hours in type. And uh, I think with the transition, I may not make it there. And that saddens me mm-hmm. because I love this aircraft. Um, for those that don't know, I have a picture on my desk of me standing in front of a, a 65 Alpha model uh, when I was 14 in high school in Savannah, Georgia. And for me, this is the, the only aircraft I've ever wanted to fly. I love flying it. I feel like I'm living out my childhood dream. And uh, it's going to be exciting to fly a new airframe, but definitely there'll be a part of me that's really sad to not fly the 65 again. So are you getting a 60 transition? You kind of indicated that you're looking forward to finding a new airframe. I don't know. It's TBD. I'm okay. still waiting on uh, on the detailers to, to decide my fate. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, uh, happy uh, to be here. It? Proud to serve. Dan, Dan Garrett, if you're listening, Dusty Williams, he <laughs> wants a transition to a 60. Yeah, I'll take that XO job and transition. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we got to make sure that the Brimblecom gets the, the honor of being a 05 CO of a 65 unit, which would be pretty amazing for him as well. Yeah, that's great. Um, so we, sir, we usually close out with, uh, you know, we already did it with your, your guys as, as well, but you know, a piece of av- aviation advice that you have gotten in your career or something that you like to pass on to those, uh, around you that have helped you along the way, anything you want to share, uh, with our listeners here? Uh, wow. Um, yeah, I think kind of advice for first, second tour aviators passed to me during my first tour down at Barinkin when Kenny and I were serving together there is, you know, we really talk about when you go through syllabus, um, you know, aircraft commander, first pilot, IPFE, you got things to focus your study in. And then you guys talk a lot about your proficiency bumps with those anchors specifically at either your P course um, annually or your stand visit. 
but you kind of have those valleys in between where you're like, man, how do I focus and how do I stay in the books and study? And a great piece of advice that was provided to me was treat your duty days as professional aviation days. Um, limit your collateral duty work, check emails, see if there's anything that you need to quickly respond to, but take the time to get with your co-pilot or your aircraft commander and go through an RT card prior to your event that night. Do it over dinner if you need to in the wardroom. Mm-hmm. Have a discussion ahead of time to, to uh, you know, be prepared of what you want to talk about and go do on your event so that you guys can have you know, a good sit-down study session. Um, and then same thing, you know, a lot of these, you know, duties, you're not on coming until 1530. If you have a couple hours at home that you can, you know, go through some stuff, go through the red book, go through some EPs. You know, it's kind of helped me maintain some proficiency when I haven't had the time, you know, or haven't been in syllabus to, uh, to focus my study habits. And I think if you're doing that, uh, it'll definitely kind of maintain you throughout the year. And then, uh, the thing that I'm doing here with the wardroom is these new aircraft commanders, when they sit down to, uh, to do their board for AC board. Um, I, I actually read through 3710, um, specifically the IP like qualifications and like things that are required to be an instructor pilot and really talk to the intangible things that are in there. You know, the focus on being tactful in the aircraft and a desire to teach and a desire to be a subject matter expert. Mm-hmm. And I let them know that, you know, for everybody here that's listening to and, and for my wardroom is, that service reputation starts your first tour, but it really, really um, grows when you're an aircraft commander. And being an IP doesn't just happen one day. Like, oh, I think, you know, Sam Hafenstadter should be an instructor. It really starts with that FP aircraft commander as you're diving into going out and leading and living out those characteristics that are listed there in seven in uh, 3710. That's awesome. That's great advice. Man, you just like touched my heartstrings, man. You, <laughs> you said my name. <laughs> Um, hey, you're one of the good ones. You're yeah. one of the good ones. I'm, uh, there's a lot of the San Francisco crew that's all there at, at ATC Mobile doing amazing things. It's uh, extremely uh, humbling to be friends with you guys, but uh, you know, to stand back and, and be proud at the same time to see the, all the great things you're accomplishing. That's awesome. Yeah, sir. Hopefully, uh, I'll see you in Magoo in 23. I'll, I'll be calling you Skipper. The same. Yeah, I like it. That would be yeah. That would be pretty amazing. All right. Well, Ops, thanks so much for uh, jumping on this call to uh, bookend the uh, podcast with your younger uh, um, first tour, second tour pilots. We really appreciate it. And no problem at all. And uh, I think I need to figure out how to designate a crew, me- crew member to fight the fire. Yes. There we go. <laughs> all right. We're working we on go. that. We're good. We'll go. get, we got one step. <laughs> okay. okay. Good deal. Nice. All right. Have a good one. Yeah. Take care. Bye. Gotta take every chance.